Yes, let's get into it. Consistency, consistency is the key to success. My name is Anna K. Hutchinson, and you're listening to For Change People. Let's chat, let's laugh, because it's your time to start choosing you. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Today, I have my guest joining today, Rel Bricker. Hi, Rel. Hi, Anakai. How are you? I am doing great. How about you? Oh, fantastic. In, we're, coming from the, we're coming to you from the future. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, it is Thursday. Well, it is morning here, um, and you're in the evening there. Um, yeah. So, we, so we'll tell you what the future looks like. Yeah, we'll definitely tell you. <laughs> so how is it since it's Thursday? What's going to happen today? <laughs> uh, no, it's a, well, where we are, it's a great sunshiny day today in Perth, Western Australia. Um, uh, what we call the smallest capital city. It's, you know, 2 million people on the West Coast of Australia. Nice. And you were born and raised in Australia, right? Uh, I was born in South Africa. Mm-hmm. I, I, I started my first businesses in South Africa. I, I reverse listed those in 1996 and moved to Australia in 1999 and ended up starting another business in 2001. So, um, yeah, so lived here for 22 years now. Yeah, 22 years. So how was it? Have you been back to Africa? Have you been back to South Africa? I have, and it's interesting. So... You know, I talk to a lot of, say, Americans who live here in Australia, right? A very good friend of ours is from Houston. And every time she goes back, she refers to Houston as home. Even though she's been here 10 or 12 years, you know, she's an Australian citizen as well. But her and I had a long discussion about it. And she said, every time she goes to Houston, it hasn't changed. You know, it's exactly the Houston that she grew up with, right? Mm -hmm. When I go back to Johannesburg, which is where I grew up, yeah. it has changed so dramatically that it isn't the place I grew up anymore. Yeah. And so, so for me, this is home. 22 years later, I still visit. I have, I have cousins there. My immediate family, my mother and sister don't live there. They actually live um, in North America. But the, the truth of it is that it's not the place I grew up. And so, therefore, now Australia is home. Is home to you. Yeah. yeah. I completely understand what you mean. I moved from Jamaica and I'm living here. So when I go back, it's so much changes that you're like, I, I feel lost. <laughs> you feel like a tourist in your hometown. You know, the Definitely. town you grew up, you feel yeah. like a tourist. And as soon as I felt like a tourist, it was no longer home because I was a tourist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we want you to share some more about your background. You're sharing a little bit um, with us just um, now, but can you give us um, some more details about your background, your company? I know that you're coming from six feet under. (laughs) 6,000 feet. 6,000 feet feet under. There we go. Correction. (laughs) 6,000 feet under. And how did you end up going into being a speaker, motivational speaker? So share some more about that. Okay, so I, I grew up in a household where finance was, was very tight growing up. And when I finished school, I did well at school. I, 
I had to get a scholarship to go to university. There was no way that my parents could afford it. And the, like the American, the student loan system didn't really exist in South Africa. So the only way I could get to university was to get a scholarship. I got one from Anglo-American, which was at the time the largest mining house in South Africa and one of the largest in the world. And as part of the scholarship, I had to work for them for two years after graduation. And I joke with people today, I had this T-shirt that we had in, in first year engineering that said, six months ago, I couldn't spell engineer, now I are one. Um, and that was exactly me. I, I went through this engineering degree because my teachers at school said, you're good at maths and science, mm-hmm. without really understanding what an engineer did. And I ended up as an engineer on the mines. And, and I was working predominantly 6,000 foot underground and spent 19 months doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the lesson I share with lots of entrepreneurs today is is I was probably too young, too arrogant, and too full of myself to really appreciate the lessons at that age. Like, I, I, at, at the age of 22, I was, I was told by the other three engineers, we're all going home for Christmas, you're it, and you've got 5,500 staff to look after for the next month. Wow. And I went, okay, no problem, I can deal with that. So I've always been confident enough to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But the lessons I learned, I only internalized when I was 30. Because I was going, oh, my God, I hate this mine. I hate working here. I want to get back to the big smoke and back to Johannesburg or Cape Town. You know, I I didn't want to be in this little mining town 200 kilometers from Johannesburg. Yes. (laughs) When I was 30 and I started other businesses and I had my own real staff, then I realized, oh, hang on a second. Those were amazing lessons I learned. So I worked underground. I then worked at Anglo-American head office, left them to do an MBA. Um, and at, at the same time, I was doing a master's in engineering. I'm just kind of crazy. But I did two masters at the same time for whatever stupid reason that was. It caused my wife and I, we weren't married yet, to break up eight times. Oh, no. um, but we still got married. Um, we got married on an amazing day in South African history, because, not because it was my wedding, um, although I'd like to think so. But we got married at 4 p.m. on the 11th of February, 1990. And at 4 p.m. on the 11th of February, 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from jail. So at the exact time of our wedding was when Mandela walked free from jail. So it's a great day. And I can never forget. And every year on Facebook or LinkedIn, I always put a tribute to Nelson Mandela on my wedding anniversary. So (laughs) I, I comment on how happy I am still married, but I also comment on the significance the of the day yeah. anyway that, that, so that but 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 i needed to explain the mandela thing because that was at a time in south africa where there was an emergent hunger for education we didn't really understand that but we kind of knew it and there were these students so we started an education business through a variety of reasons in south africa and i had all these students coming to me clutching their year 12, their, their high school graduation certificates, which, to be honest, weren't worth the piece of the, the paper they were written on. They had aggregate marks of 35%, 35% aggregate, but they'd been given a, a certificate to say they'd finished school, yeah. and they wanted to study. And so we were taking these students through a junior college. We started what the American equivalent would be sort of a junior college. It was called a... a, a a diploma, not a degree, but it, it was the same idea of, of the equivalency. Yes. And that grew from 20 students in 1990 to 4,000 students by 1996, over six campuses. So we were, I, I thankfully, we were in the right place at the right time, but we also did a lot of good things. And those are in my book, 
of how we actually grew the business. Um, I, um, we sold out where we listed into a reverse, we reverse listed into a company. I had a year's contract with that company. Um, we did nine acquisitions for them over that period. I finished my contract and I left, went into venture capital. So because we're doing all these acquisitions, went into venture capital, went into buying and selling businesses, which is pretty cool, actually, with someone else's money, it's even better. Um, <laughs> and um, then I left Australia, left, came to Australia, ended up in a venture fund as well, listed that on the stock exchange here. So raised 20 million, listed that on the stock exchange here. So had some really cool experience. They wanted me to move from Perth to Sydney which in the American context is moving from LA to New York. It's that distance, okay? And it's, it's, it's almost like moving from a, a town like San Diego, like the, the San Diego lifestyle to the New York lifestyle, completely different. Different, yeah. And I went, nah, my kids actually enjoy living in Perth. I'm going to stay in Perth. Went out on my own and started a finance business because people wanted to raise finance. And then they said, great, can you do our home loan? And I went, okay, I can do a home loan. I don't know how to do it, but I'll find out. And um, start a home loan business, which I still own today. And that's done 3 billion in mortgages over those 20 years. So that's the, the seven years ago, I was, or seven years ago, I had two cardiac stents. Um, I was training for a marathon after doing triathlons. And that also made me focus on what I want to do in my life. Yeah. My mortgage business was built by me being on stage. So you asked the question, how did I get to be a professional speaker? Yeah. I had spoken for the last 10 or 12 years before that on stage with people about retiring, building property portfolios, being self-sufficient, all those things. And of the three billion in mortgages we've done, about a billion was done by me off stage. So I knew that I could speak. I knew that I could stand on stage and present. Yeah. And then in 2015, I was asked by the industry to say, can you come and talk about how to build a business? Nothing to do with mortgages. How did you build your mortgage business? And I went, that was cool. And I got on the plane and started writing a book. And I went, that's what I want to do. I was, you know, I was you know, 51. I went, this is my midlife crisis. I'm going to change careers. Mm -hmm. And by 2019, I became a certified speaking professional. And there are only about 1,500 worldwide about 1,300 in the U.S. and about 200 outside of the U.S. And, yeah, and today I'm president of Professional Speakers Australia in Western Australia, and I spend my life, well, pre-COVID, I used to spend my life four to five months a year traveling. I haven't done much traveling over the last 18 months, yeah. but, um, but that's how I end up here as a professional. I still own the financial services business. Clients still want to talk to me because of my knowledge, and my relationships and that's okay i'm happy to do that but i also um i i guess really i'm passionate about education and seeing the lights come on in, in entrepreneurs eyes and i run four-month academies down to you know keynotes to four-month courses and i actually get much more satisfaction out of the four months because i see the lights come on in people's eyes i actually see the engagement i see We've got it, and we're making real change. You know, you do an hour keynote, it's fantastic. You're a 1,000 people in the audience. They give you a standing ovation. They go, wow. But then have you made any real impact? Not really. So so that's the story of how I got there. Sorry, it's, it's been a long journey. It's had to take from 6,000 foot all the way up to the surface. That's a, that's a good journey right there. Um, thanks for sharing. I... Um, 
actually so happy that you spoke about like, you know, helping the um, the teaching part of it. That's the, the part that you enjoy. Because as you said, a one day conference, you can, you know, do that. And that's great. But when you can see the stages of your students and how they can transition from one level to the next, that's where you get the enjoyment out of it. And I think that's like the greatest word, you know, any teacher in whatever professional uh, profession you're in, once you can see that, you know, they have implemented what you have given onto them, that's the greatest feeling that you can get. Uh, absolutely. And it, it, you know what, it, it's, it, it's great. Part of what I enjoyed about being on stage and talking to people about retirement and property was if I could count the number of people who are now property millionaires because I helped them get there, okay? And by the same token, that's what made me happy in my finance business, not because I was making money out of it. Yes, that was important because it allowed (laughs) me a certain lifestyle. It's not (laughs) you need to generate revenue in a business, otherwise your business goes bust. But the truth of it was, I would say people, I don't care if, you know, I have a number of properties in a portfolio, but I'd say to clients, well, you've got 10 times more properties than me. I don't care because I'm helping you get better. And by yeah. helping you get better is making me better. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> that is great. Yeah. That is great. Um, so we're going to go into the ethical crossroad. So we're going to talk yeah. about that. We're going to also talk about, um, you know, some important um, um, stages of starting and growing your business. We're going to get into that. The first thing I want to throw at you or the first question that I want to pose to you is, which is more important, creativity or to be efficient? I actually think creativity. um, And and I'll explain why. Um, Part of my, so my book is titled Dive In, Lessons Learned Since Business School, but we only came up with that title about three weeks before we published, okay? For, for the time uh, long before that, it had been called uh, Give Up Control to Gain Control, okay? Bit of a cryptic title, but mm-hmm. that explains the difference between the creativity and the efficiency because the entrepreneur in a business, the, the person who's the passion in a business they are probably best, unless they're really just a unique entrepreneur, but they are probably best at out there selling and generating revenue because they can talk with passion and excitement and, and really tell the clients, you know, the potential clients what it's about. But the problem with entrepreneurs, you start a business, you don't have any money, so you do that, and then you rush off at night to do the accounting and the finance and the admin and all that kind of stuff. That's the efficiency part of the business. But truly, to make yourself the the most effective person in that business, the entrepreneur or the person with a passion should be out there being creative, being the ideas person, being the sales person. So I always say, make yourself, that's what I'm the give up control is, give up control of the $10 an hour admin and take control of the $500 an hour revenue. Because if you're doing that, you can yeah. pay people the $10 an hour to do the admin. And, and unfortunately, or fortunately, the whole growth of the virtual assistant market over the last few years, uh, unfortunately, has outsourced 
a lot of local onshore jobs to offshore, which is a problem because people are looking for work onshore. Yeah. But also it's created a whole industry in countries that need the revenue, like yeah. the Philippines, etc., where people desperately need an income and people are outsourcing work to them. So it's exactly that. It's about the creativity is the person with a passion driving the business. The efficiency, you can actually pay people to do that. I like that. Um, what would be one thing that you could share with someone who might be thinking, yes, I want to be, you know, creative in my business, but I'm looking at the fact that I don't have the funds to find someone to, you know, be the social media, um, you know, marketer for my company, or I, I don't know, what could you share with someone to say, hey, the, you can maybe work this way and become more creative well let, let me go so again one of the chapters in the book does exactly that it's it talks about i never ask staff to do anything that i wouldn't do doesn't mean i can do stuff efficiently or effectively but can i post a post on linkedin or instagram or facebook or maybe not tiktok because i haven't done any of those but but yes but that's that in on those three media right yeah. Can I do it? Yes. Am I really good at it? Probably not. There are people better than me. Mm -hmm. But if I've done it and I've seen the level of engagement that I'm getting, then I can go. And, and, and we talk about outsourcing. I mean, I was looking the other day, helping a, a, a client that I'm working with who wants to outsource that. And you can outsource social media to people in the Philippines. And I'm not pu pushing that, but but from a revenue, from a cost base at, you know, $500 US a month. Okay. So if you think about it, if you are focused as the entrepreneur on generating one more sale of $500, you're paying for the $500 assistant full time to do that. Now that's the, the trade-off. Yes, we may not have the money. So yes, you have to do it yourself. But you have to do it just with yourself with one eye on the ball, one eye on the ball that says, as soon as, I, and why do I say you have to do it yourself? Because you never want to be held over a barrel by any staff member, by any team member of yours that says, you don't know how to do this, so you have to pay me more money now because I'm the specialist, right? And I know that's a harsh statement. And if you build a team correctly and create the right culture, you don't get that. But I've seen lots of toxic cultures where employees think they can hold the company over a barrel because they're the specialist. Okay. Yeah. And so, so yeah. So, you know, how would you do it? Absolutely. As an entrepreneur, I still see entrepreneurs who think they're corporate and they go, oh, it's five o'clock. It's time for a beer now. And I'm going, that's not the way entrepreneurs work. I'm still, after 30 plus years as an entrepreneur, I will still go on a Sunday morning out for coffee, take my laptop, sit in a coffee shop and catch up on two days worth of emails. Why? Because I'm not because I'm mad about work, mm -hmm. because it's part of my routine. I'll take myself out of my work environment to do something different, but I'll do that. Um, and so that's the, the mindset shift when someone leaves the corporate and goes, I'm going to be this, you know, wild out there entrepreneur. Look how much money I can make. Look how successful. There's also a mindset shift. Yeah. The mindset shift is for the first six months, I'm going to have to do everything. 
unless you've got money raised and you can afford to employ team members straight away, but most people don't. And so the, the, the truth of it is you have to know how to do everything reasonably well. It's the same way I did my MBA. My MBA, well, not my MBA, when I did my MBA, I wanted to know lots of little things about business. I knew I was never going to be a corporate manager, but I wanted to know lots of little things about business so that when I ran my own businesses, yeah, I knew idea. lots of little things. I had to employ an HR person when I had 160 staff in my education business in South Africa, but I knew the basics of HR from my MBA. That's what the entrepreneur has to do, is not say, I'm just this mad creative. <laughs> they have to actually, so a lot of the work I do is in behavioral styles, right? And, and I talk about people, like how you communicate with people who have different behavioral styles to you. And, and that's why behind me on the shelves, you'll see all these colored things, including colored glasses back there, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so the colored glasses back there are exactly that. You, you have those because you have to look at people through their own color lenses. And so sometimes you have to change your own behavior. So I'm very much out there. I'm what's called a yellow red in my, in my color coding of, of behaviors. But in my finance business, I have to be blue sometimes. I have to be detail-oriented. Yeah. And so I change mindset to detail. It's not a comfortable space. Mm -mm. And there's an old saying that says you've got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. You've heard that? Being, being comfortable with being uncomfortable is exactly what an entrepreneur has to do. Exactly. You have to do the things that you're uncomfortable with, and then you can outsource them. I like that. Yes, you have to be very much uncomfortable with some of the things that you're going to do because it's not going to be easy all the time. What, what, what's one of the hardest decisions you've ever made? Um, it, it's probably in terms of, uh, I mean, one of the hardest decisions as an owner, business manager is getting rid of people, okay? Yeah. And, and I say that, and, and that, you know, that's a human resources nightmare when I say getting rid of people. But whether it's downsizing, redundancy, or it is um, having to fire somebody for an ethical problem and having done both. Okay, so, so there was a time when the property market in Australia was pretty flat. And um, my, man, my general manager and I looked at it and went, we don't need this level of staffing. Yeah. I mean, the bizarre thing is I had to make someone redundant and four months later, call them and go, we need you back. <laughs> okay. But at the time, we didn't see a turnaround in the market. And that was a really hard, uncomfortable decision. The person's well integrated back into the team now, and I'm happy with that. Nice. Um, so that was, that was challenging because I'm, I'm just this generally this Mr. Nice guy. Um, Many years ago, I drew a line in the sand, an ethical line in the sand in the finance business. And I said, as a broker, and I had 17 or 18 brokers working for me at the time, I said to them, I need to see your notes where you justify that, okay, I went out to see Anakai, and I think the best loan for Anakai is ABC Bank over here. And I said, that's okay, but I want to see three more lines in there that says, because... Mm -hmm. I've chosen this bank because body, body, whatever the story is, right? Yeah. And I had a particular broker who thought he was being clever. And he wrote, because I get paid the highest commission for getting the loan there. Wow. 
Right. And that just broke my ethical line. And I just went to him and I said, you've actually put it in writing. You know, if you'd come to me and said, look, Rail, I have an ethical problem. I have this bank and this bank. They're both the same for the client. Mm -hmm. But this one pays me more than this. I would have said, like, let's do the analysis. And, and truly, if they're identical products, but you can get paid more, that's okay. Yeah. But in this case, he'd actually put them into a worse product so he could get paid more. More. Yeah. So, you know, I had to go through the whole disciplinary process, human resources, disciplinary process, etc. have full records, have other people in the interviews with me. Um, and so much so that he never got another job in the industry because I actually reported him to the Ethics Commission because I just thought that was, as a fellow, and now I'm a fellow of the mortgage industry, I just felt we didn't need people like that in the industry who made the wrong decisions for their clients. Yeah. And I mean, as you mentioned that, like, you know, what's one thing you could share with an entrepreneur um, who is starting out right now about, you know, the ethical part of it? Because we're talking about the ethical crossroads. Yeah. Like, I mean, yes, that, that was unethical for that worker, but what are some other um, unethical um, behaviors you've seen in the past where you're like, no. So, so the biggest challenge in ethics is, is defining the boundaries and defining the, that line in the sand that you don't want people to cross. Now, so, so one of the things we've always um, brought in here is that the truth, will, the truth is king. Now, that sounds simple. You'd expect every company to have that. Yeah. But, but the natural tendency, and, and I'll use the financial services business, the natural tendency for people is to go, oh, you know, I forgot to send that file to the bank yesterday. So I'll just tell the client that the bank are running five days late. Okay. Well, no, stand up and own it. It's always been my philosophy. Turn around to the client and go, I really apologize. I know we've got time on our hands or we don't have time, whatever the situation is. Um, but, you know, I forgot to send it yesterday. I'm sending it off today. So we expect an answer in three days. Yeah. But just be open and honest because otherwise it's a web of lies. And it, it then a little lie leads to a bigger lie and a bigger lie. And that's a problem. So, so we had this thing about being totally open. Now, so when one of the lessons I teach my staff is if I have to phone a client with bad news, right? And bad news is bad for them and me because bad news is generally, oh, sorry, you're not going to get your loan. That's bad news for them because they're passionate about buying a property. Yeah. The bad news for me is I don't get paid either. So <laughs> there's, there's a mutual you know, understanding here. Exactly. But I would stand within the open plan area, right? I would go and stand or sit in the main working area and make the call to the client. And before I did that, I'd tell all the other staff to stop doing what they're doing and come and stand. We, I mean, I've got a very experienced staff now. I don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. But in the early days, I would get them all to stand around me and be quiet. And then they would hear how I spoke to the client how I explained to the client why they never got their loan and potentially giving them alternative options or whatever the case may be. But I thought it was a great learning experience. And that's part of that ethical, cultural background. That you, and so ethics and culture are, are cornerstones of business, all right? If you don't have the ethics and the culture right, 
the business will collapse. I always use the, the cornerstones, the foundation stones. If you're building a house and you don't put the right foundations in, and in any business, yeah. ethics and culture. Now, so you've got listeners going, well, that's great. I'm a solopreneur. How do I define the culture? Well, you've got to think about it in terms of what happens when you employ your first staff member. Mm-hmm. What do you tell them to do? How mm-hmm. do you interact with them? You know, um, you know, uh, someone I knew in the, in the finance industry used to refer to his team members as Muppets. Now, uh, that, you know, just because he had no respect for his own for team. His, yeah. um, one of my staff, one of my key staff celebrated a 10th anniversary this week. Yeah, 10th anniversary at the office, okay? And yet his staff had an average tenure of six months. And it just was about attitude. It was about how you dealt with people, that culture and the ethics that you created. One of the things I tell people on stage when I'm standing on stage is to take their left hand and put it on their right shoulder and take their right hand and put it on their left shoulder and embrace the intersection that we're at, embrace the intersection of humanity and technology because that intersection that we're at now creates lots of ethical dilemmas. There's so much on YouTube. There's so much false information, fake news, everything else out there. You've You've got to get to this intersection and make the decision to go on the right path. Yes. Indeed. I know there are so many things out there that can um, <laughs> sway you and, and turn you to do, you know, the wrong things, but you have to, you know, stay on the right path. Yeah. What's one lesson you've learned from a mistake that you have made? So the, the, the two, I guess, two big lessons. One was when I was 14 and I thought I could conquer the world. Well, I've always thought that, but I've got better as I've got older. Yeah. But um, I worked in an electronic shop. It was my very first job. And a, a person came in to buy a car radio. Now, for anyone probably under the age of 40 now, they wouldn't understand why people buy car radios because all cars have them fitted already. But, you know, you know, this is, you know, 40 years ago, you actually fitted a car radio into the dashboard of a car. And this, this young lady sort of said, oh, how do I do this? How do I fit this in? It's a nice radio, but... And I said, don't worry, come over to my house this afternoon and I'll fit it for you. It actually cost me money because I ended up damaging a car and whatever else, right? Yeah. But I learned a lesson there to you that I knew even at that age, I was in year 10 at school probably, you know, out of 12 years, that whatever I did in life had to involve my brain and not my hands. Now, I became an engineer, but engineers are still brain thinking rather than, you know, using their hands. I love woodwork and I love creating things, but I would, am I a craftsman? Not at all. But I learned early on that any business I do has to involve my brain. So, you know, you have to learn. And and so the lesson extended is use your skills, use what you're good at. Don't try and be somebody else. Yeah. You know, that guy down the road is a good painter. Therefore I'm going to paint pictures and sell them as masterpieces. Doesn't work. Okay, you know, use the skills. You know, we could get into the re- the religious, philosophical that you've been given, and right. It's not. It's not that because you develop skills in life, but it's about just using the skills you have. Now, that's the one. The second thing is find your lane. Sometimes, so 
After I left the venture fund, when I was starting the financial services business, a friend called me and said he's found this amazing product from, from Germany, which was a storage system for CDs and DVDs. And, you know, going back now 20 years, that was the primary medium we used to back up computers. We never had hard drives or, or external hard drives that were too expensive. Yeah. And I thought this was amazing. I literally bought a plane ticket, jumped on a plane to Germany, went to the factory, was amazed by this product, bought $5,000 worth of stock and shipped it back with me to Australia. And then I thought, geez, this is amazing. I need to go out and sell. So I went out and stupidly ordered $80,000, a container load of stock to arrive in Perth about two months later. And then I started trying to sell and I realized that I was useless at selling product. <laughs> You're not, okay. yeah. but There were a few reasons. One is that the big chains who, you know, the, the office, office supply chains only wanted to deal with people who had 100 products and could deliver into every store. Mm -hmm. I had one product range. And I, so I was useless. It was, yeah. Um, and, and so I ended up giving that $80,000 worth of stock to a friend of mine who was down and out, couldn't get a job. He went and sold them to a $2 store and got $5,000 for $80,000 worth of stock. And at least it kept him and his family in food for another couple of months. But that was after paying warehousing and everything for about four years. So I also realized that in my lane, and I, I, this was after being in South Africa and selling education and getting all these students into the business, I suddenly realized my lane was services, not products. Yeah. That I needed to sell the intangible, not the physical. And so, you know, it's about finding your lane as well. Not saying don't change lanes later on but you know as an entrepreneur we mustn't be shiny object syndrome grab this grab this grab this you do have to have a lane and if that lane's not working then change lanes yeah. but find what you're good at get get to understand your core and my core is selling services exactly you got to find what you're good at and um i think that's one thing that I have been realizing over the past months is just finding what I'm good at. I mean, you know, there are so many things that I could be doing, but what is it that I'm good at? What is going to make me, you know, stand out? And it's not just doing every single thing you see other people are doing because not because they're doing it and getting the success out of it. That doesn't mean I'm going to try it and get the success like they are doing it. It's because that's their lane. You know, that's what they're good at. So, you know, we each have to find what we're good at too. Yeah, it's, it's our, it, it, it's what makes you unique, you know, yeah. uh, in the, when I was talking, when I was doing a lot of talking on finance and I'd stand up at night at nine o'clock and say to people, how is it that nine o'clock I can be standing up here with all this energy and excitement about finance, which is boring. Yeah. Okay, finance is a boring topic. How do I make it exciting at nine o'clock at night? And, and, I, and I said, quite simply, because every person in this room that I deal with has a different story, a yep. different background. I'm not going to be like any of you, but I'm going to give you the best bit of me every time we talk. And so okay. I knew what my niche was, was explaining finance in a way that the average person could understand it. And it applied to each one of their circumstances. So absolutely, it's finding what you're good at. Mm-hmm. Find something that you're good at and work towards it and work on it. Work on improving what you're good at. You'll get better at it and you'll find, as you said, at, you know, at nine o'clock, you're pumped and you're energized. Um, once you find something that you're good at, you're going to be pumped 
no matter what time it is, you're going to be energized no matter what time it is to share and to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And how do you determine or evaluate success? I mean, I think success has got nothing to do with the bank account. I mean, if your bank account's empty, yeah, maybe it's a problem, okay? But it, it, it's not really about how much money in the bank, how many properties, how many Rolex watches you have. It's, it's mm-hmm. actually got very little to do with that. And in fact, probably the people with, you know, uh, a lot of the biggest challenges are those who've been financially successful, but not successful in life. And I think if your financial success allows you to be successful in life, I look at my three kids and I look at the amazing kids and everyone thinks the kids are amazing, but okay. But I think my kids are amazing. They're not kids anymore. The old, my oldest is, is almost 28 and my youngest is, is 17. And, but I see the individuals, the thinking individuals they've become two of my i have two master's degrees my my two older kids are both doing masters at the moment in different countries so you know that they've become world travelers they've become um understanders of the world they become deep uh, classical thinkers whilst being totally out their personalities and so for me that's success that i've given them enough support and understanding to create that. And could I have done that if I was working 25 hours a day out of 24, you know, trying to put bread on the table? Well, that was what we did for a long time. And, you know, starting businesses, it's no easy road. But I think that they understood what we were doing. But as an entrepreneur, what did I find? How did I find my success? The ability when there's an assembly at the school or a concert at the school, to be able to go to my staff, sorry guys, I'm going to the school for two hours to listen to the assembly. Because I think that is part of that. That was what made my kids successful and that's what made me successful. So I, I think the measure of my success is is my happiness, my kids, uh, my family. Mm-hmm. And that came from being successful in business. Yeah. But I could have, it's not my personality to have been in a job as a CEO of a major corporation. It, I, I get too frustrated. So, but that's how I define success. That's how you define success. Nice. I mean, it, the, the flexibility that you have, you know, as you, because you're running your own business too, is the fact that you're able to be around your kids more often or, you know, you're able to go to events for them. Um, so, I mean, running your own business, that's the, that's the, the perks, or I should say, you know, that's one of the kind of values that you get um, yeah, when you run your own boss. business. It's being your own boss and being the boss of your own time. I think that's yeah. the, the, the more important part of that is, is you gain control of your own time. So, you know, you go, well, I could be out there prospecting and trying to earn another $500. Or I could be out there watching my kids who are not great athletes, or my son's pretty good, but my daughters are not great athletes. Um, But going to watch them run school races was more important than going out there and prospecting for another client. Yeah. And then I want to ask you one more thing before we end the beautiful conversation that we're having, because it's such an amazing conversation right now. Um, 
so we're taught we you know are on the the topic of ethical um, crossroads and I know many times when it comes on to you know prospecting a client or reaching a client you know many times we could you know say something that might not be 100% correct but because we want that client to be on board with us we go ahead and we might say hey if you do this you you might get a $200 in sale or something like that you know is there would you say that that's okay and and let me let me go in deeper so for example i'm i'm communicating with you and i'm like rail you know if you join our company or if you do services with us we know that you're going to start making $200 right away but you know for a fact that might not happen because it's all about the outcome um, I mean, the work that the person put in, do you think that is unethical or you think that is also ethical to go with? No, no, no. I, I, I have a lot of problem with, the. I mean, I get pictures on a daily, weekly, monthly basis of, yeah, follow this system and we'll get you 4 billion clients and blah, 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 but just pay us, you know, $597 for the privilege, okay? Uh, or whatever it may be. Um I mean, I think I think honesty and truth are the are the keys. I mean, there are just to digress on ethics for a second. If you think about the the problem of a doctor, and I'll use that as a as a doctor, a doctor who says, "I refuse to have anything to do with um, abortion." Right? Fair mm-hmm. enough. That's their ethical line. But as a doctor, they've also taken an oath to save life. Okay. Now, they're working in the emergency department. A heavily pregnant woman comes in, um, and they have two choices. They can perform an abortion, a late-term abortion, but if they don't, the patient is most likely to die. The, the mother is most likely to die. But ethically and morally, what are, they, what are they compelled to do? We could have a whole ethical discussion about that. Yeah. But they've drawn their own line in the sand that said, that's what I, you know, I'm not going to do that. Now, what happens if they do, if they go ahead and they do the abortion and save the mother's life? Has that changed where they are? No, it hasn't. It, it may have. They may turn around and go, well, maybe I don't need such a hard line on it. But that, that, that's a very extreme ethical question. So if we apply that to day-to-day business, like, yeah, come and join our team and you could earn $10,000 a month. And I remember this pitch very carefully when I started my finance business. You know, I had people pitching to join their group and, oh, yeah, you can earn this. And I, and I got to the fine print, you can earn this in three years' time. But they just left that statement out. So, so I think there are, there are incredibly unethical people around there. Mm-hmm. Are those ethical, unethical people driven by money, absolutely. You know, I, I, business colleagues of mine have a view that everyone is driven by money. And, and I, I was having a debate, so my area that I speak about a lot, you'll see the white sign behind me says culture, is culture in organizations, okay? And, and I, was, I was debating with someone the other day, does culture have a value, okay? Simple question. Yeah. And what did they, they said, well, explain what you mean. So I said, if I'm saying to you, Anakai, right, here is company A that's going to pay you $200,000 a year, but 
it's got a toxic, horrible culture. You're going to come home every day and reach for the bourbon because you've had such a terrible day at the office. It's been so stressful. Yeah. This company is going to pay you $150,000, but they have a most amazing culture where you're going to come home totally energized at the end of the day. Is there a value to that culture to earn less, but to change your lifestyle? Okay. And so, so those are the kind of things. So when we, you know, unfortunately there are lots of ethical people who still believe that everyone in the world is driven by money and, you know, fish out there dangle. Oh, you're going to earn $10,000. I mean, multi-level marketing schemes. How many of those are out there? Well, sorry, they're not called that anymore. They're called, Oh, I've gone blank for a second. <laughs> network marketing. Thank you. Yes, network marketing. And and there are there are some network marketing um, organizations that are fantastic that really do a good job, and people through the network really make a good living out of it. They do, yeah. But they also say that when you join network marketing, the first thing you lose is all your friends and family because you're trying to sell them your product, yeah, which, yeah. I, which is I love as a story. Um, <laughs> You know, but my eth my ethical brain looks at network marketing in a broad nutshell and goes, if they are paying all these commissions out all the way down the line, what's the product really worth? If it's a hundred dollar product and they're paying out seventy dollars in commission, surely the true intrinsic value of the product is thirty dollars. And so my question is, when people are marketing that, they're not thinking through it at that level, and saying. What's the value that I'm adding? Yeah. What value am I adding? That's why I love the finance business because I was truly adding value to people. That's why I love being a speaker because I can turn around and go, I added value to that person. I, I made that person do something. So in finance, they changed. They got a better interest rate. They bought a new property, whatever. In, in, in working with companies, in running masterminds, I run mastermind groups. And I look at the people in the mastermind, how they grow. From the very first session where they sit there with their arm, I'm not talking, I'm not sharing, I'm an accountant. It's not my nature to do that. I you know, know this. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Just like, yeah, putting my dark glasses on so you can't see my eyes. <laughs> to, you know, six months later where when anyone else in the group says, oh, look, I'm having this problem with X, Y, Z, they're the first one to say, yeah, why don't we look at it like this or let's share something or whatever. And so that's progress. That's what you're doing. Okay. So, so, you know, that to me is, is, is adding value to people. When, when people are conceptually thinking that everyone's driven by money, not adding value and not doing them a good service. And so I have an ethical problem with that. Yeah. I, I agree with that. You know, we got to be straightforward and, and be a hundred percent honest. I always say, listen, your, your clients that you're trying to attract, you know, they come to you because they want someone to listen to them, not only help them, but listen to their needs and help them. And if you you just do what you want to do in the in the moment because you want to make money, you're not gaining clients. That's just a one person coming to shop and leave. You want to retain those clients and you want to keep them. And the best way to retain and to keep the clients is to listen to what they want and help them the best of your ability yeah, it's to find their pain points and and unfortunately a lot of people who are selling unethically 
or as you said, convincing somebody to join their organization on the promise, on the promise, on the promise of, of, of doing something in the future, but mainly just to access their database or access their energy and then they're going to leave because they're never going to make it. Um, th th there's a huge problem with that. Um, mm. they, 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 they are picking one pain point and they, unfortunately, you know, go to any, you live in Vegas, yeah. go to any of the casinos. And, 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 and as much as they drive the, the, the economy of Vegas and, and, and Atlantic City and a few others, if you ever walk through the casino and see the number of people and you look at them and say, they shouldn't be here. Yeah. They don't look like they've got two cents to rub together. Exactly. But, exactly. but that's what they're doing. And I'm not calling it a moral complaint about the casinos. I, I have no problem. I enjoy going down the strip in Vegas and you know, the different casinos, but I'm much more controlled. And, but, but it's exactly the same thing. What if the casinos sold to that person who's down and out the, the promise of hitting the jackpot and winning the money and changing their life? It happens. It's exactly the same ethical dilemma when you say to somebody, oh, come and join our organization because you can earn $10,000 a month or, 20, you know, or, or get the big bonus and, you know, go to Jamaica, <laughs> go to Jamaica <laughs> on holiday, you know, on our incentive scheme, whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that's the, that's the ethical problem. I mean, we, it, it's a whole debate about the casino industry and, and, and what message they're putting out there of, you know, the fact that the house always wins is something they don't tell you. Exactly, exactly. So, Rail, before you go, I want you to share with us one positive quote or one positive, you know, line or anything that you want to share um, just to end and then provide us with your website, um, any course or activities or any um, speaking engagement that you have coming up. I know you were supposed to be in Vegas um, in July, but let us know when you're coming to Vegas. Oh, I will do that. Um so a word of advice, the, the key to successful business, is, and there's lots of them, and, and, and I will give to all your listeners at the end a, a free copy of my book, a PDF version that they can download. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so, but, but and, and there's lots of these types of tips in the book. But one of them is never ask your staff to do anything that you wouldn't do. Okay. And, and it sounds simple and trivial, and in the day-to-day -day office environment, you'd say that's okay. But I'll, I'll tell you a little background story. Our, the men's toilets in my offices, men's toilets never smell that good, okay? Right. And so I went in there one day, and I said, God, this smells awful. How can I send clients who come in to visit our office into these toilets? Yeah. So I went to my PA, and I said, can you find out where those nice smelly things that you find in public toilets or hotel toilets, whatever, that they put in the urinals and it takes away the smell? Can you find them for me and get some ordered? So they arrived the next day. I then took out a box and I asked her to order a box of rubber gloves at the same time. Yeah. And I took the box of rubber gloves and I called all the men in the office. And I said, here is a box of rubber gloves and here is a whole bucket of these things that will make our toilets smell a whole lot better. And I took, I put on a rubber glove and I took a handful of these and I walked into the toilets and I put them in. That was 12 years ago. I've never had to do it again. Yeah. Because I showed the staff that I was prepared to do it. 
And now I don't even have to remind them. One of the guys will walk in and go, doesn't smell that good. He'll go get the gloves, get the blocks, put them in. I've never had to do it again. And so it's a simple thing like that. It makes you human as a boss. That mm-hmm. makes the staff then understand you and buy into your journey that you're taking them on. Yeah. I so that's that. the that's the one piece of advice is <laughs> is never do, ne- never ask your staff to do anything you wouldn't do. So I will walk into the office. One of them will offer me a cup of coffee in the morning at five o'clock in the afternoon when I'm the last one here or one of them's in a meeting with clients. I will go and offer their clients coffee and go and make it mm-hmm. because I think that's what you have to do as a culture. Right. How do you get a hold of me? Railbricker.com is my website. Not that complicated. www.railbricker.com or excellencepodcast.com, both of those. Um, and a free gift for your listeners is to go to railbricker.com slash free book. It isn't on the main menu, so you have to know the URL. It's railbricker.com slash free book. And there is a downloadable copy of my PDF of my book called Dive In, Lessons Learned Since Business School, published in 2018. Um, And it's the story of my entrepreneurial journey and all the things I learned and applied in my businesses. Thank you Um, so much. (laughs) Speak engagements and that, there are a lot of those that come out. A lot of them are individual corporates, so they don't get publicized. Like I talk for corporates, I don't publicize them. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's YouTube videos of a lot of the stuff I talk about on culture, on colors, on behavioral styles. There's a lot of video material on my website. And I'm always happy to take emails or LinkedIn requests. I, I'm not a snob. I always reply to LinkedIn requests and I always reply to emails. Yes, <laughs> he does. <laughs> and fast. <laughs> Thank you so much, Royal Bricker, for being a part of the podcast today and for sharing your background with us and for, you know, just talking about ethical, um, you know, crossroads with us. I think this was an enlightening conversation. And I think many um, of the audience who are listening and they are, you know, business owners, they can take something away from this. And especially when it comes on to being ethical in their business. So thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you very much, Annika. It's been a great conversation. I love the the flow and the ease of having a conversation and weaving different topics into a a kind of complex idea. Yeah, it is, but (laughs) you made it easy. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. Go for it now because the future is promised to no one. You have just listened to a weekly episode of For Change Be Bold podcast. You can keep the conversation going by following us on our Instagram page and our Facebook page at For Change Be Bold podcast. And until next week, have a wonderful Friday.